We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Good morning, Emmaus. It's good to see you today. What a joy to get to sing with you and to get together and hear the word with you. If you're a guest, um, and I've not had the chance to meet you. My name is Joshua. I'm one of the pastors here at Emmaus. Thanks for joining us today. We're um, just incredibly encouraged and glad that you're with us. We'd love to meet you after the service at the Connect table in the lobby, um, or I'll be down front here. We'd love to meet you here as well if you'd like to come down front. Uh, you can also go to EmmausKC.com forward slash connect or scan the QR code behind me and get connected with Emmaus that way. Thanks for being with us. Hey, take your Bibles and open to the book of Acts. <clears throat> chapter 23. Well, technically, we will um, conclude chapter 22. Uh, I think it's one of the most awkwardly placed chapter changes in Scripture. It literally begins a new paragraph, and you get a couple lines in, and then it's a new chapter, but it's the same thought. And so, kind of awkward, but we'll conclude chapter 22 and go into chapter 23 of the book of Acts. Let me pray for us, and we'll get there. Uh, Jesus, thank you for your um, and your grace to us today to bring us here. And thank you for this word. It's a word that we need to hear. It's a word that our souls need to be encouraged by. Would you do that today? Would you stir up within us courage that we would not fear, that we would have faith? May we see your goodness and your plan and your providence in our lives. Encourage us with this today. I thank you that you've gathered us here men and women who were once your enemies, now seated at your table. And so prepare this table before us through your word. Spirit, preach a better sermon than I have prepared. We pray these things in your name. Amen. As we sing that song, it's interesting to me um, that Paul was a man who once was welcomed at everyone's table except for God's. And then God intercepted Paul's life changed his life, transformed his life. And what we've seen now, chapter after chapter, is that the only table Paul appears to be welcomed at is God's. Those who once welcomed him to their table now reject him, and we see that again today. If you remember last week, um, Paul was on trial. He's um, being condemned by a mob, and he's stretched out to be um, tortured by Rome, and and Paul claims his citizenship, and he claims his birth, and he claims his uh, Jewish culture and tradition, and and, and Paul uses these things which God had prepared for him in his story, in God's sovereignty and in God's providence. Paul uses these things um, as a means by which to defend himself, and they're actually God's means by which to allow Paul to speak the gospel. We used this key phrase last week, God gave Paul a story so that Paul could share God's story, right? And that continues for us today as we look at this. We're in this portion of Acts that uh, if you you go and you research uh, sermon series through the book of Acts, we're at that place where churches either just quit preaching the book of Acts, right? I mean, that happens all the time. You get here and it's kind of like, all right, I think we're done. We got the main gist of this thing. And Paul made it to Rome and died, the end, right? Or, or they just try to lump everything together, get it done in a big hurry. And, and, and I get it. I, it's very repetitive. I mean, from here through the end of the book, Paul's on trial. 
he defends himself, he's in chains. He defends himself, he's in chains. He defends himself, he's in chains. That's what we have until he dies at the end of this story. But I think we miss some really fruitful encouragement for us if we try to rush through it. And so today we're going to look at this chapter, chapter 23, the end of chapter 22 and into chapter 23, and we're going to break it down into four sections as we walk through it. First, we're going to see Paul being on trial by the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the Jewish court made up of Pharisees and Sadducees keeping the Jewish law, and they're going to officially have a court trial for Paul. Then we're going to see Jesus encouraging Paul, one verse of that. And then we're going to see this plot to kill Paul uncovered. And then we're going to see Paul delivered um, to the governor, Felix, in Caesarea. Those are the four sections of this text. And as we go through this, what we're going to see and what we'll see in the coming weeks is trial and assassination attempts and protection by Rome and more trials by the Jews and more trials by Rome. Paul is a prisoner in a house and Paul is a prisoner in a prison and Paul is a prisoner on a boat. And Paul has a shipwreck, and Paul's bitten by a snake, and Paul's in chains. And we see miracles take place, and in the midst of all of this, we see faith. We see faith to persevere by Paul, and we see the faithfulness of God to Paul and to his mission. In the midst of all of what we're about to see, there's one verse where Jesus speaks to Paul. I believe that verse is the thesis for the rest of what we're going to see throughout the book of Acts. It's chapter 23, verse 11. Look at it with me. In chapter 23, verse 11, it says this. Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also do in Rome. Take courage, for as you have testified about the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you also must do in Rome. Last week, we saw the sovereignty of God in Paul's story so that Paul could share God's story, and that continues. And and the word that we could use for this is God's providence, right? That God is actively working in the details of life for his purposes and his plans, his providence. It's the idea that God is aware and that he's acting on behalf of the good of his children, the glory of his name, and the fulfillment of his mission all the time all the time, that the details of your life are for this purpose, that God is not absent standing back far off watching, taken by surprise by what's going on, and then just trying to make the best with what he's given. God and his providence is actually using the details of life proactively for your good, for his glory, and for the fulfillment of his mission. So as we journey through this, we see this verse, take courage You have been faithful to proclaim me here in Jerusalem. You must also do so in Rome. The reason this is the center of the rest of what we're seeing, the reason this is the thesis here, is because what this verse is doing for us is it's God God is pulling back the curtains, if you will, to allow Paul to see what's going on behind the scenes. Paul's suffering. Paul's on trial. He's wanted to go to Rome. He's felt compelled to go to Jerusalem, even though the Spirit kept telling him, when you get to Jerusalem, there'll be suffering and imprisonment waiting you. But Paul felt compelled by the Spirit to go into that, followed in obedience. He's arrived, and that has happened. And now God shows up and speaks to him with this word of encouragement, this word of hope. 
this word of providence when God goes, just as you have spoken about me here, you will speak about me in Rome. In other words, take courage, Paul. You're not dying today. Take courage, Paul. Everything going on is fulfilling a plan. You will be in Rome. You will speak on my behalf there. I'm working this out for that. The suffering, the imprisonment, and we're even going to see the trials were actually God's means by which to get Paul to Rome. It's the way he transported him there. So let's look at it. Beginning in chapter 22, verse 30, awkwardly placed. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. Right, the next day being the day after the Romans had strung Paul up to torture him to figure out why is everyone mad at him, right? We, we've got a great way to figure out why everyone's mad at him. Let's just whip him until he almost dies or does die. And if we don't figure it out, oh well. And if we do figure it out, that worked out well. And in the midst of this, Paul just says, hey, by the way, don't know if you need to know this or not, but I'm a Roman citizen, which meant they would be executed for whipping him. So they take him down, they put him in prison, and, and then they decide, let's call an actual trial. And so the Romans call together the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Jewish court, the next day to hear their accusations of Paul. Verse, chapter 23, verse 1, and we'll read from here through verse 5. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. But Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you ordered me to be struck? And those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, my brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. It's a fascinating portion of passage. They called together the trial. And Paul stands to defend himself before the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And he addresses them as brothers multiple times here. If you remember, Paul is a Pharisee himself. He's been among the ranks, and and many believe he was even part of the Sanhedrin at one point. And so he doesn't refer to them as fathers and elders as others would have to. He refers to them as brothers, as equals. And Paul stands to defend himself against them, to, to them, and he says this. He says, my conscience is clear up to this day. Which is a fascinating phrase for Paul to be able to say, I have lived my life before God in all good consciousness up to this day. Now, Paul's not claiming perfection. He's not claiming, I've never done anything wrong. I've never made a mistake. I've never sinned. But what Paul is doing is he's saying he is, he is blameless in his conscience before the Lord. He, he has done everything that he's done in an attempt to please God. He's pursued God. He's chased God. He's wanted to be faithful to the law. And remember, what he's on trial for is throwing out the law, throwing out the temple. And he goes, in relation to these things, I'm blameless. I hold to the law. I hold to the temple. I have not thrown those things out. I'm simply teaching that Jesus has come to fulfill those things. So Paul believes in his conscience deep within his soul. He's blameless before God. 
The high priest does not like this. It sounds like heresy to him. It sounds like blasphemy to him. And he orders Paul to be struck on the mouth. And Paul turns to the high priest and he says, God's going to hit you, you whitewashed wall. Who do you think you are judging me for the law while also breaking the law by ordering them to hit me? He's accusing him of being a hypocrite. You're accusing me of breaking the law. You're breaking the law by ordering them to hit me on the mouth right now. You're a whitewashed wall, and God's about to punish you. Now, it gets more interesting, because the Sanhedrin speaks up, and they go, who are you to revile the high priest? You would speak to God's high priest this way? And we get this really interesting response from Paul. Verse 8. And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak of an evil ruler of your people. Or you shall not speak of um, evil of a ruler of your people. This is interesting. Because Paul is a Pharisee. He's possibly been part of the Sanhedrin. The, The high priest has a very specific wardrobe that he would wear. Like, it's not like he's there incognito. Right? It's not like, hey, I was in this group, and I'm not really sure which one was the lead guy. This is the lead guy. Some scholars think that this might be Paul's blindness. Right? Some believe that Paul had trouble with his eyes and that there was blindness, and maybe he couldn't see well enough to really know at this point if this was him. But many believe, and in Pastor Patrick's commentary, he takes this stance that Paul's actually being sarcastic. That Paul is actually going, him? I couldn't tell he was the high priest. The way he's acting, what he does, his lifestyle, (laughs) he could have fooled me. He's not my high priest. That's Paul's approach. Now, history would tell us this is true of Ananias. He was not a godly man. He stole from the other priests. He Um, buttered up, sucked up to Rome, and sold out his own people over and over again. And eventually, he's even assassinated by the Jews. They see him as so wicked and so evil that his own people kill him. He's not a godly man. Paul knows that. Paul speaks to that and calls it out. Let me encourage you in this. I've had some conversations about this recently, and and let me just encourage you this. Though Paul here tends to be sarcastic, though he lashes out strongly, God will hit you on the mouth, you whitewashed wall, right? Which is very much the prophet's talk of the Old Testament. Though he uses sarcasm here. Though before there was a man by the name of um, Bar, um, Bar, Bar Jesus, and he said, no, you're actually the son of Satan, not the son of Jesus. Right? Though Paul has used language like this, he's been strong and in your face and sarcastic at times. It's typically just not the wisest thing for us to do. The scripture doesn't condemn Paul here of doing this. But just, I believe we're far too sinful to go, this is my strategy too. Paul has given me license to be harsh and cruel and sarcastic to make a point. I believe we're far too sinful to try to 
straddle that line and not at points fall over into sinfulness doing so. All right, so just some encouragement there. But Paul does it, and the scripture doesn't condemn him here. The story goes on. Now, verse six. When Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between them, between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. Um, But Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes and Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Paul surveys the situation. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin gathered, and Paul surveys the situation. He pulls the pin and he lobs a grenade. He lobs a theological grenade into the midst of this courtroom. See, the Pharisees believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees do not. The Pharisees believe in the spirit world. The Sadducees do not. And Paul pulls the pin of the resurrection. And he throws it into the midst of the room. And it explodes. Paul says, you know what I'm actually on trial about? Hey, everyone's wondering why everyone's so upset. You want want to know why everyone's so upset? Because a resurrected Jesus came to me and spoke to me. And he resurrected me. And now I'm proclaiming hope that we all can be resurrected from the dead through faith in Jesus. Paul's not just, hey, what's a way out of this? Let me figure out a way out of this situation. Oh, a great way is to get them all to like squabble with themselves. No, Paul actually goes, you know what the real reason I'm on trial for? It's because I preach a resurrected Jesus who resurrects sinners. We all, because of that, have hope in being resurrected from the dead ourselves. And when he pulls that pin and he throws it in, the Pharisees who believe in the resurrection and the Sadducees who don't get incredibly upset with each other. They start getting in each other's faces. A a, a mob breaks out amongst each other, sharp discussion with each other, so much so that it gets violent, it says. So this business meeting, this courtroom, is just turned physical and violent. And the Pharisees are even standing up and going, hey, you know what? Paul's innocent. The very people who were just condemning him are now like, he's innocent. Who cares if a dead man showed up to him and he's telling us that the resurrected come back? We believe that too. He's an innocent guy. Suddenly, Paul's on their team. And the Sadducees get even more worked up over this and fight against it. Insert God's providence. That the very message Paul has, one of resurrection, is the very thing that would free him from this moment of trial so that in the coming days, he makes his way to Rome. So he throws the grenade, it blows up, and Rome has to rush in 
and take him by force so that he won't be torn to pieces by these crazy religious leaders. Chapter 23, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. What a verse. What a verse. In the midst of all of this, it's the only instruction we get. Paul gets this. The Lord stood by him on those dark nights in your suffering and in your hardship. When the future seems unknown and you think all is lost. When you don't know how you will make it through the night and get through tomorrow. When you're questioning whether God accepts you, whether he's forgiven you, whether he loves you. When you're questioning whether you've heard him correctly. When you're, when you're in the midst of suffering and hardship and you're wondering, does God see? Does he know? Does he still love me in the midst of this? When things are going wonderful and when things are going terrible, the Lord stood by him. Sometimes we just need to not be alone. And as a follower of Christ, you're never alone. The Lord stands by you. In the midst of the hardships and the dark nights and the questions and the doubts and the concerns and the fears, the Lord's with you, standing by you. And the Lord stands by Paul and he says to Paul, Take courage. Some translations say, cheer up. Be of good cheer. Take courage. Which is a phrase that God has used with his people all throughout history. Let's just take a survey of God's encouragement to have courage. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6, God spoke to Israel through Moses, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be, dread, be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Joshua 1.9, God speaking to Joshua, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Isaiah 41.10, God said to Israel, fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Psalm 118 verse 6, the Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. Psalm 27.1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Christian, the Lord stands by you today and says, take courage. Do not be afraid. I am with you. I am your strength. Can you hear that? 
Can you receive that and take that in for a moment? Don't be afraid. I'm with you. I'm your strength. And I have a plan. Right? You might not know what tomorrow brings, but I have a plan. That's what he tells Paul. He says to Paul, take courage, just as you have faithfully proclaimed me here, so you will also proclaim me there in Rome. So God roots his command and his encouragement of not fearing, of being courageous. He roots it in two things. His presence, he stood by him, and his providence, there's a plan. I'm working things out. I'm with you, and I have a plan. Don't be afraid. I'm with you, and I have a plan. Don't be afraid. He goes on. Chapter 23, verse 12 through 22. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Right, so they decide we are going to assassinate Paul. We're going to kill him. We've got a plan, and there's 40 of them that do this, and they make a vow before God, we're not going to taste any food until Paul's dead, which is ironic because he doesn't die for quite a while now. Right, I wonder if they fulfilled that vow. I just... The scripture doesn't tell us, but I just wonder how long they actually went until they, someone broke and ate some food, kind of like us on a diet after Christmas, right? They make this vow, we won't eat until we kill him. And so they set up a plan. Hey, let's call to the tribune to send Paul for another trial. And on his way, we'll lay ambush and we'll kill him as he's on his way. And we'll be rid of him. Verse 16. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. And the tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor to drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Here we get the beautiful picture of God's providence at work. We get to see how God is fulfilling the promise to Paul for Paul to preach in Rome. God has just shown up to him. Take courage. I'm with you and I have a plan. You will preach in Rome. And now there's an assassination plot and God is working things around the scenes so that the assassination does not take place, but instead Paul gets to go to Rome. 
as they're making this plot, ironically, we're introduced to this new character, Paul's nephew. It says the son of Paul's sister. We didn't even know Paul had a sister. Right? We definitely didn't know that his sister we didn't know about had a son we didn't know about. The son of Paul's sister shows up on the scene, and somehow, amongst all of Jerusalem, Paul's sister's son finds out about the assassination plot. We could say coincidence. We could also go God's providence. That the right person finds out at the right time about the right situation to release Paul. And so he comes to Paul in prison. Paul was able to receive visitors in prison because he's a Roman citizen. Again, God's providence. Because Paul was born into a home of citizens, he is a citizen, he can receive visitors. His nephew comes to him, tells him about the plot. He tells his nephew, or he, Paul calls the guard, and the guard comes over, and Paul tells the guard, he instructs the guard, take my nephew to the tribune and tell him, have him tell him of this plan. And the guard listens to Paul. Now, you would not expect this to be the case. The prisoner in jail instructs the guard what to do, and the guard says, okay, I'll do that. But again, Paul's a Roman citizen. And by Roman law, Paul has a right to instruct the soldier what to do and for the soldier to listen to him in this moment to take his nephew. And so the soldier escorts his nephew to the tribune. And when he comes to him, the tribune takes him by the hand, leads him away. He almost has this scene of a very tender moment. Leads him into a quiet spot, it almost appears, and says, and I'm sure his nephew must be like, like just spastic at this moment, right? He's, his uncle's about to be assassinated. He's running into prison. He's telling him a soldier's escorting him. He's now standing before the tribune. Maybe he's, maybe he's shaking. Maybe he's nervous. Maybe there's anxiety going on. And the tribune takes him by the hand, brings him over and says, Shh, tell me what's going on. And he explains to him what's happening. They're going to try to trick you. And then they're going to kill Paul. Don't let it happen. And the tribune says, Go, tell no one you've told me this. Tell no one you've told me this. God's providence, even in the tribune's receiving of this. Verse 23. Then he called two of the centurions, and he said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen, and go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide, a, provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. All right, so, so just so you're following what's happening, Paul's a prisoner on trial with an assassination plot against him. And the Roman tribune calls two centurions to him and goes, hey, take 470 soldiers with you. 200 soldiers spearmen, horsemen. And by the way, give Paul a horse. We don't need him walking on this journey. Put him on the horse and 470 of you escort Paul to Caesarea, the capital, so that he can stand before Felix, the governor. Right? The protection of the Lord. There is not going to be an assassination take place by 40 men on this day. Right? The Lord says, they want to kill you? I've got other plans. Here's 470 soldiers of your enemy to protect you. And the tribune wrote a letter. 
to Felix, the governor, to this effect, verse 26. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them and the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to the council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So here's his letter to the governor. And I want you to see how um, self-congratulatory his letter is. I, Claudius Lysias, to the excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and about to be killed when I came in and I rescued him. I rescued him because I found out he was a Roman citizen. I rescued him and I brought him back from death, from being killed by them. And I allowed him to be put on trial, but I found him innocent. Which again, church, remember, this is the providence of God. You remember the grenade Paul threw about the resurrection? And the Pharisees and the Sadducees begin to fight. And in the midst of this, the Pharisees go, he's innocent. Felix is not going to condemn him when the Pharisees and the Sadducees can't even agree that he's guilty. Right? And so in the providence of all of this, he now writes and goes, I find him innocent. I rescued him because I knew he was a Roman citizen. And now I'm sending him to you and I'm sending all of the Jewish leaders to you for you to host the trial. I see him as innocent. But see his self-congratulatory and it's even a lie. He says, I found out he was a Roman citizen, so I rescued him. Remember, he rescued him to stop a riot, and then he was going to torture him. And then he found out he was a Roman citizen, and then he put him on trial before the Sanhedrin. He leaves that important detail out of this narrative. By the way, I almost killed the citizen. I almost beat him down, but I didn't. Praise God, that was a close one, your excellency. Instead, he leaves that out, and he just praises himself for rescuing him. Enter God's providence that God is even able to use the pride of this tribune to send a letter to the governor to warm the governor's heart to protect this man. God has pulled back the curtains to let us see the pieces of his plan to get Paul to Rome so that the gospel literally goes to the ends of the known earth. We conclude the chapter, verse 31. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to the, uh, to the Atip- uh, Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. And when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. And on reading the letter, he asked what, provident, what province Paul was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, He said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's Praetorium. Again, enter the providence of Paul's birthplace. Paul was born in Tarsus of Cilicia. And this governor hears he's from Cilicia, a respected region, and goes, I'll see your case. I'll be your judge. And he holds Paul and protects Paul until the trial can happen. Church, Paul's going to be in prison here with three more trials for the next two years. 
He doesn't get to Rome tomorrow. He doesn't get to Rome in six months. Two years go by before he's sent to Rome. He's in prison that whole time, but he's guarded and protected. And we actually get Paul's writings and his letters to the church in the midst of that. So here's what I want us to see today, church. Wherever you find yourself, God has given you a story that you, so that you can share his story. And But more than that, God's providence is actively working on your behalf today. It's working for your good, for his glory, and for the fulfillment of his mission. Right? The scriptures tell us that he is always for our good, even when we don't see it as being for our good. His purpose is not for our destruction. Right? His purpose is for our good in the long run. At times, we go through suffering and hardship for that. But the Lord is good, and he's working all things together for a plan. And that plan is for his glory and for his mission, the news that Jesus saves sinners to be spread. So Christian, I wonder if today you can see the Lord standing by you in whatever you're in and whatever you're facing and saying, take courage, I have a plan. Take courage, I have a plan. I will not leave you nor forsake you. I am your strength. Take courage. I have a plan. I hope it builds trust in our hearts. I know for some of us it's hard to receive and see because the hardship we've gone through is very, very hard. And I remind you of the truth. God is for you, not against you. He loves you. He doesn't hate you. He sees you. He's not ignoring you. He has a plan. Trust him. For the unbelievers in the room, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, in the providence of God, you're here today hearing this. You've come today to hear us sing these songs and to hear these confessions and to see this scripture. You're not here by accident today. You walked in these doors for some reason, maybe to appease someone who invited you. But the Lord had a plan for you to hear the news that Jesus saves sinners. He takes dead people, people who are dead in their sins and who are separated from God eternally, and he gives us life through the resurrected Jesus. Would you believe that today and be saved? I'd love to talk to you more about that after the service, if you would like. Every week at Emmaus, we get to take communion. We get to come to the table, and we get to take the bread and the juice, and we get to celebrate the resurrected Jesus. And today we do that as well. Today as we come, may our minds and hearts be set upon the fact that as we come to this table, the Lord is beside us, and the Lord has a plan. And we know that the Lord will fulfill that because the Lord is alive. He is resurrected. So we come to this table in courage taking strength and faith. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we would invite you not to come to this table, not to partake in the bread and the juice which represent the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, but instead to stay in your seat and to take Jesus today. In a moment, I'll pray, and then I'll dismiss you to come. You'll stand, you'll exit from the front to the back to your right, come down, receive hand sanitizer, bread and the juice, go back to your seat, take, and we'll conclude with one song.
I love you, church. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the encouragement that it's been to me this week. I pray it's an encouragement to these men and women this week. Thank you for standing by us, for never leaving us or forsaking us, for over and over again instructing us to take courage. Do not fear. I am with you. I have a plan. May our faith be strengthened. May our hope rise. May we trust that. May we see you actively working in your faithfulness towards us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Church, come and take Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.